Oh, what a privilege it is to be with you all today, even through technical platforms like this or digital platforms like this. It really is brilliant. I've loved worshiping and I've loved being part of uh, this meeting so far. Even joining the prayer meeting before was so cool being led in worship. And um, I mean, just Maretta and Grace did so well. And, and even especially leading us in a song that's not in a language that uh, I'm particularly familiar to. It was interesting seeing, um, a- I mean, Andy and Maretta are from Norway and they're leading us in worship in Klosa. And I just thought it's so beautiful, you know, as, um, as we do that. It was a lovely time. And so anyway, fantastic. I'm uh, about ready to get into week four out of seven. There's three more to go next week. We're looking at the origin of um, gender and marriage before we look at the origin of uh, two weeks on suffering in our world. First, the origin of evil and then the origin of death. And we've been journeying through uh, the book of Genesis chapters one to three as we answer the big questions of life. Who is God? What can we know about God? Um, we've looked at questions like, who are we as human beings? What is our role? Where do we fit in in this world? Uh, what are we supposed to do? We've looked at questions like, and we are still going to look at questions like, what's gone wrong with our world? And uh, how will it be put to right as the story unfolds? Um, it's been an incredible journey so far. Let me quickly take you on a whistle-stop tour, catch us all up, as we see how this message today fits into the greater journey of Genesis. We started by looking at a God who is a sovereign creator God who made the entire cosmos. We saw how the universe came to be. We looked at the different options for how that came to be, both human beings and the astonishing universe that we're living. And we saw how such a complex, fit-for-purpose world was the fruit of design, the most, the most reasonable leap of faith we can take in looking at how the world came to be is that of an intelligent creator God who gave great thought to bringing this world into being. We saw that this creator God, simply by just observing in our universe, he must be a God of great power, of great intellect, of uh, phenomenal creativity, and even, even hints of beauty. But this is an extraordinary God who created all things. This world is so lovely that although it's tempting to want to worship created things, hey, in those days, created things like the sun and the moon and the stars and the great mighty sea creatures, although it's tempting to worship created things, today I suppose we could go our work, our career, our, our, uh, our incomes, our monies, our relationships, our families, etc. Instead, worship is actually reserved for the creator God alone, the one who made all of these things. And somehow when we elevate him to number one in our lives, we reorientate our perspective to all of these good and glorious created things, and we live with a renewed perspective. We saw how that this world is created by a Trinitarian monotheistic God. I mean, technical terms I know, but it's because God is Trinitarian, three in one, and he's God in three persons, one God as well, and yeah, we struggle to get our heads around it. It's not the kind of concept that any human being could have made up, but yet it's that reality that makes our world fundamentally the product of love, the overflow of love, and so fundamentally our world was created good, overflowing from this God. And uh, this God created our world good. And at the, at the center of our world, he created a garden called Eden. And it was, I mean, Eden literally means paradise. That's how it translates. Uh, Eden, he created this beautiful garden called paradise. 
At the center of this garden, he created human beings, Adam and Eve, and he placed them in the garden, and he gave us responsibility and work to do um, in order to to expand Eden to encompass the whole globe, uh, that paradise would become part of all of earth. And he gave us as human beings a commission to work, to to bring uh, order where there's chaos, to bring um, structure where there's anarchy, to fill this structure and to fill this order that's been created now with beauty and life and wonder as we fill the earth and order the earth after the personhood of God. But we also saw that something had gone horribly wrong. That something had gone wrong in the story. We saw how paradise was lost. They got to put a tree at the at the in the, in this garden, and um, it, it wasn't just like a like a trick tree to trip us up. It wasn't like a banana skin that he hoped we would slip on. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing as many have kind of put forth that it is. But it was more like an, an ancient exit door. I don't think it needed to be a tree. I think it could have been anything. It could have been a giant red button that just said "Hit this button if you want out." Right. The idea being, it wasn't a banana peel as much as it was an option for human beings to opt out. And we chose to take this exit door and we walked away from God's design. We walked away from God as our, as, as our purpose, as our, uh, the object of our worship. And we chose independence over purpose and happiness. And now we've, in a sense, as the Fleetwood Mac song goes, we've gone our own way, right? And today, I want to dig down a little bit deeper, deeper, deeper into the purpose of human beings, looking at work and rest. Today, we look at how we are meant to live as human beings, and in particular, focusing on work and rest, work and rest, and how these come together in our purpose as human beings. These two themes are powerfully part of what it means to be image bearers. Um, And so let's jump in. But before we do, I promised myself I'm setting a timer here for all of you so that uh, I know exactly how we're doing. Okay. Uh, In fact, uh, here we go. Uh, The Harvard, in 2009, the Harvard Business Review produced a report that looked at people in professional services. And this is what it, uh, what it, 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 it showed us. That those who work in professional services, which is many of us on the screens today and in this meeting today, uh, believe that an always-on ethic is essential to succeed in the global marketplace. In fact, 94% of the 1,000 professionals surveyed said they put in 50-plus hours a week. Almost half said over 65 hours a week. And, and not included in those 50 and 65 hours is the 20 to 25 hours that uh, devices are turned on and need to be monitored monitored for emails and calls outside of the office. That was 12 years ago. It's just, got, it's just got more serious, hasn't it? In January this year, the Harvard Business Review reported that due to COVID and the kind of workplace changes and the kind of juggling that's been needed to be done right in this season, burnout, which is defined as chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed, is at an all-time high. So we've been working more than we've ever worked before as a species, and it's not going well. It's showing some signs that things are cracking, right? Four years ago, Gallup did a poll that uncovered that of the world's one billion full-time workers, only 15% feel that they're engaged in their work. I mean, a staggering 85% of people say, I'm just not engaged in the work that I do, right? I, I want to stop for a second. How about you? Are you engaged in the work that you do? Do you spend your time kind of feeling dissatisfied, 
and, and hoping the day would be over? Do you spend your time, I mean, how many hours at work do you spend longing for the weekend, right? Or waiting for one o'clock where you can switch off and forget or yearning for the next project or the next promotion that will make all this suffering at work worth it, right? I think this is the world that many of us live in. Yet, Genesis teaches us that God designed work, that God cares about work. It's part of his original design. It's part of his original order. Take a look with me as we read from Genesis chapter 1, from verse 26 to Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 3. Are you ready? Let's read together. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. It's God in our image, Trinitarian, and, and in, in our likeness, and this call to rule over that is part of who we are as human beings. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. It's this beautiful repetition. We are image bearers created by God to do a specific specific thing. Uh, verse 28, God blessed us. He blesses us in our role of ruling here. This ruling is a benevolent ruling for the good of the world and for the flourishing of God's creation. And he said, be fruitful. This is what it means to be an image bearer, to increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue is to bring order to where there's disorder. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You see the repetition? God wants us to get this. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food, right? God gives us resources, and he, and he enables us to do it. He blesses us, and, and the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Even God rests. Then God blessed the seventh day. The day itself is blessed and made holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at your word, as we look at these three chapters of Genesis, which speak about life and and who we are and how we're meant to live, God, would you speak to us today? Form us as human beings after your image so that we can go out into the world and reorder and refill our world with the beauty and the splendor of your likeness. We pray today in your name, Jesus. Amen. So let's start by asking this question. Do you, do you regard the material stuff, the actual stuff, whether that be spreadsheets or wood or tiles or pencils that you work with, do you, do you regard the work that you do as God's first-rate stuff imbued with lasting value? Or do you think of it as your job as a temporary job site? Or you kind of bide your time, maybe even a testing ground, before you kind of graduate and escape to the true immaterial heaven. I think a lot of Christians live like this. However, Genesis teaches us this is not the Christian way to think about life, and it's not the Christian way to think about work. God is a God who works, and He creates us and intends us to work as well. 
Firstly, see in Genesis 1.28, God called us to work. We see this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, fill the earth and subdue it. This is work, rule over. This is God's work. Again, in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Mankind, human beings are there to work. God has a high view of work. Work wasn't the result of sin. It wasn't the result of the fall. It's part of being an image bearer. As human beings, we're in the image of God and we're designed to work. We're benevolent rulers charged with uh, causing the world God has created to flourish and to thrive, to bring forth life and beauty and flourishing in the world. This is who we are. This is what we're meant to, meant, what we're meant to do. Doesn't it sound amazing? Why is it so hard then? And why is it so difficult? When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the, the consequences of this rebellion impacted too on our work lives, our orientation towards many things. Our orientation towards work got messed up and got jacked up along the way. We were never meant to find our identity and our ultimate worth in our work, rather in God who made us and called us. But instead, uh, we flipped it around, and now rather than working, we, we almost serve our work as we work to derive a sense of worth and meaning in life, rather than in God himself. Through the fall, our dominion, which was supposed to be benevolent, has become, rather than benevolent, something destructive in the world, destructive to others, destructive to our planet, destructive to even ourselves in our creating, right? Our creations hurt. They hurt ourselves, they hurt others. And not, not only, don't get me wrong, we're, we're, we're still in the image of God, but we've seen this thing morph and become less than God intended it to be. Rather than um, love and benevolent good, we create in order for power and self-preservation. And these things shape not just our current reality, but the history of, of human history. I think that sin, is, a sin has even corrupted the way that we evaluate work. We look at oftentimes different work with different value of, of manual labor, for instance, as menial or tedious or demeaning. It's undervalued. Yet in Genesis, we meet a God who digs in the soil. He is literally the first one to toil in the soil and bring out something that causes life and flourishing. And it was good. Even later, when Jesus came in the incarnation, the Greeks thought, hoped that, uh, you know, if Jesus was in the image of the Greeks, he would have come as a Greek thinking philosopher, you know, but he didn't. If it was in the image of the Romans, he would have come as a strong judicial leader, right? But he doesn't. Even in the image of, of the Jews of the day, had hoped for a great military general. But that's not how Jesus came. Instead, he came as a humble carpenter who taught us how to live simply and beautifully. Even if work doesn't result in a paycheck, it, it's still good and of God. I think of so many roles and things that we do in life that are of God and blessed. I think of stay-at-home parenting as you fill the earth by forming uh, family life and lives for human beings. I think of even in this season, as so many of us have lost our jobs during COVID. And uh, th this job search that you're on, this hunting can feel, it doesn't pay, it can see, seem fruitless at times. But I want you to know, God is in that, that hunting for work is a good thing. It's good to give yourself. It's a worthwhile endeavor in the eyes of God. It's only human beings since the fall who've come to value work according to the size of the paycheck. 
and undervalue work accordingly as well. Okay, so let's look briefly at how, let's look at how we're supposed to work. I'm going to go quite briefly. I want to really get to rest today, and uh, I think that's where the sweet spot's going to be for us. But if you're thinking about how we should work, here's three quick quick things to think about how we should work. Genesis 2.15, and the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. So number one, as stewards of the world, I think we should try to find work that the world needs. We should try to find work that the world needs. And and you should try to orientate your job as best you can around what the world needs and putting something to right. Then I think we should try to find work that that, that, um, utilizes our unique gifts and talents and histories, right? Ephesians 2 verse 10, it's a great verse to commit to memory. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us. We are God's workmanship or his handiwork, if you will. God has worked on you. There's a reason you think the way you do. There's there's things that have happened in your past that shape who you are, that enable you to to do something that I can't do in this world, etc., and vice versa. And we're gifted by God, and we're placed by God in a specific place, in a specific time, to do works through us. Often we think of this verse as like serving in church, and it totally is part of that. Um, But it's equally part of our, um, our work lives, our day-to-day vocational work. And so part of this is uh, in our work, let's leverage our talents and leverage our treasures, the, the things that are associated with work, for, for being image bearers in God's world. Number three, lastly, try to involve God in your work. Try to involve God in your work. God didn't put us on earth and commission us to do these things and then just go and start a new project and disappear off into the sunset, right? That's not what happened. We see a God who is a relational God. The story we're reading of in Adam and Eve is of a God who, who comes to be with his creation, who walks with his human beings. God is, it's, it's, it's us as human beings who've created this kind of sacred and secular divide. This is not true of the scriptures. We have a God who gets his hands dirty in the soil. We have a God who works. And not just, I mean, everything is spiritual is what I'm saying. Everything is sacred. In God, your work is sacred, and, and it's not helpful to compartmentalize. Oh, this is my spiritual, my sacred life is Sundays, and my, my, my kind of secular job and secular life is Monday to Friday. That is not what Genesis teaches us. And so, involve God in your work. God is interested in being with you behind the desk as you hold the mop, as you hold the pencil, as you stand before the classroom, etc. God is with you as you pick up the instruments, the tools for your task. Involve Him in what you're doing. How are we doing? We've looked at work. I want to keep us moving. I want to speak now to rest. Genesis 2, verse 1 and 2. Slow down. And take a look at this. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. And on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. At the end of six days, God's creation is, in a sense, finished. It doesn't mean that it's totally complete Tim gave us such a great picture last week. Hey, just a shout out to Tim Hoffman who preached last week. You are such an incredible communicator. And our church is so blessed 
by your voice. It was brilliant. You spoke to us of this Eden account. It's like a farmer, like a father who, who creates a farm and then invites his children to come and partner with him as, he, as you fill this, uh, this farm and you, you order this farm and then expand it to, to make the rest of the world beautiful. It's a creation that is unraveling, that is ongoing, and we're invited to partner in. God had left plenty of work for human beings to join, human beings to join him in doing. But the initial setup was complete here. And God crowns these six days of work with rest. A full stop. Or maybe not a full stop, a comma. A Sabbath is the word. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to stop or to cease. Maybe, maybe a full stop is better than a comma. Humanity is the climax of God's creative work. And it's after creating human beings as the climax of his creative work. He, he, he rests on the seventh day. And the seventh day is like the climax of the work week. So why does God rest? I'm sure you've thought about this, or many of you anyway have thought about this. Why does God rest? It's not because God is tired. It's not because he needs to rest. I think God rests here because he is ordaining a work-rest rhythm for his creation, for his world. He says six days he blesses work. Seventh day he blesses rest. This is the kind of rhythm of life in God's world. It's the genetic rhythm. It's later on that God brings this in as a command. Have a look with me at Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 to 11. God says to us, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Maybe God put this command in there because, again, our orientation not only to work, but even our orientation to rest was out of whack, and we were getting it wrong. And so God inserts these commands to help us find our way back to truth. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. It's good to work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Who's the Sabbath to? It's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male nor your female servant, no animals nor foreigners in your towns. It's a day for all under the shade of your tree, all under the kind of sphere of influence of your life to cease and to stop. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it Holy echoes of Genesis now working out through God's people, Israel. It's true that religious people through the ages have kind of over-regulated and in their over-regulated, almost squeezed the life out of the Sabbath. Admittedly, that's true. But God designed it, we see in Genesis, as a gift to us. God modeled the first Sabbath himself as a place of delight. And so work was a gift, yes, but so too is rest. So too is rest. Through the fall, both were corrupted. Through the fall, instead of finding our delight in God, we began finding our delight in work and in things of leisure as well. Um, Instead of being delighted in Him, ultimate delight, we found temporary delight in these things. And Sabbath is an opportunity to, to cease from finding our primary identity in work and strife, to stop that and remind ourselves that no, our primary place place of belonging in the world is in God. And so we can cease, we can down tools and stop and pause and remember ultimately, here is my worth, here is my dignity, here is my value, here is my identity before we re-go back into worth. Sabbath is an invitation into delight. It's not drudgery and rules. 
to follow. It's an invitation to delight. The Sabbath, God intended, would be the best day of our lives. In fact, I think from Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you should be looking forward to Sabbath. Monday and Tuesday, you should be smiling and thinking back on how wonderful Sabbath is. Sabbath is a holy time where we, we feast and we play and we dance. And for those of us who are married, we make love to our spouses. We sing, we worship, we pray, we laugh, we tell stories, we walk, we go out and walk on the beach, we gather together as the community of God and the family of God and we worship and we sing songs in in our native language and we sing songs in other languages too because it reminds us that we're part of a great family an eternal body and we worship God and our hearts are realigned to one another and to him and good things come to our soul on Sabbath it's a day when we like God stop our work and we acknowledge that our life is not only defined by our work This is so important. And our productivity. Walter Brueggemann, he puts it like this. Sabbath provides a visible testimony that God is at the center of your life. That human production and consumption take place in a world that is ordered and blessed and restrained by the God of all creation. Sabbath is an act of faith that God has got not only the whole world, but he's got my life too. And so when I stop, I renounce my kind of control over the world, my autonomy from God, and I freshly embrace my dependence on him. Part of making the Sabbath a regular part of our lives is acknowledging that, God, you're at the center of my life. I stop weekly to make sure that you're not drifting onto the periphery. Yes, we do that in other ways as well, but Sabbath is like a weekly reminder to do that. I think we err as well when we put leisure at the center of Sabbath because... It's like we put our delight ahead of delighting in God. Leisure, again, leads us into self-gratification. And I do think it should be a part of our Sabbath, absolutely. But don't build your Sabbath around it. Build your Sabbath around delighting in God and remembering what's ultimate. I think too often we rest as a reward from work, right? But, but if you look at the original Sabbath, Sabbath was the first day of the week. And so this mindset, I know it doesn't sound like much, but it's this mindset to resting at the first day of the week rather than at the last day of the week. What it does is it, is it means that we're not resting from work, exhausted and tired, trying to replenish to catch our breath. Hey, and if I feel quite strong, I can even skip through this one and do the next one I'm resting from. No, no, we're resting for work. And so it's in this place where I come before God and I delight in Him and I remind myself my true identity is in Him. I am loved and I am accepted before I work. And therefore I go out into my world loved and accepted. I'm not going with a deficit trying to find acceptance, trying to justify my existence through my productivity. No, no, my existence is justified because I'm God's child. He's in me. I'm in Christ. I'm whole. I have everything I need. Now I can go into the world and contribute not out of deficit or necessity, but out of love and overflow, exactly like God did when he created the world in Genesis. It's amazing rich three chapters we're living in. Tim Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he quotes Madonna. This is what she had to say. Looking at the false God of success that we're so tempted to worship at. I have an iron will, and all of my life uh, has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. 
And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And again and again. This is Madonna. I mean, she's reached the pinnacle of what uh, uh, humanity can kind of esteem to, right? My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, she says. And that's always pushing me, always pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. This drive to prove I'm somebody ceases when we start by starting from a place of rest in God. We say, I am already, I don't need to work to be somebody. I am somebody in God. Uh, this is not just for super celebrities out there. This is for all of us. This kind of need to justify our existence by our work and our productivity. Think of, think of how many of us feel pressure when someone says to you, how are you doing? You've you got to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so busy. I'm tired. I've just, I'm stressed. I've just been working so hard. And it's almost like we have to project outwardly that what I'm doing matters, that I'm doing so much stuff. You see, see, I really do. I do uh, add value to this world. See, I'm really worth something because of what I do. But this is, this is, this is the cart before the horse. As Christ follows, it's from a place of rest. We, we rest because God worked first. And we rest in God's work. He who never sleeps and never slumbers. And we rest in Him. And we receive the love and the acceptance and the affirmation just as we are in Jesus in Sabbath. And then we go out into our world. And we're able to be a blessing to others. When we get it the wrong way around, we, we, we experience temporary success. And it's like grabbing at water, you know, and you feel, oh yes, it was so good, I, I, and then it slips through your fingers again, rather than anchoring our souls in the eternal God. Bottom line is, you were designed not to find your identity in your work, but you were designed to find your identity in Christ. It's the only immovable, non-yo-yo source, solid to bear you and the weight of your identity. And Jesus came to remind us. In fact, he said that you will only find true rest when you rest in him. His invitation to you and to me is still the same. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Does that sound like your life? I'm not talking about laziness where we don't work. No, no, no. But where, where, where your identity and your joy and your worth is not tethered to your productivity. It's tethered to Christ. Take my yoke upon you. You see, we work. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The right perspective for work, the right perspective for rest, only comes when our core identity is on Christ. Then we are reorientated. Our orientation is put right when we align to Christ. And then the way we reorientate to our world is different because He is the source of our identity. You see, we work from a place of being loved and accepted rather than for love and acceptance in Christ. Let's wrap it up together before I want to lead us to pray. I think there's many of us today who need to do some business with Jesus, and I'd love to lead us in prayer. Let's wrap it up. God has a high view of all work because God designed it. Your work, my work, He's designed it all. We work with God in stewarding his world towards flourishing. We do it benevolently for the good of creation, for the good of others. To be human, though, 
is to be finite. We're in the image of God, but we're an image bearer. God is infinite. We are finite, and so we are limited, and we need to rest. We are designed to stop, to unplug, to plug into Him, and to recharge in Him. God designed us for rest for a Sabbath, which is about stopping and delighting in Him, trusting Him, and reorientating to put Him at the center of our lives. So here's a question. What do you need to do from here? What do you need to do from here? How do you need to restructure your diary, your heart, your time to make sure you practice the Sabbath and rest in God each week? What habits do you need to stop doing or start doing less of? And and new ones do you need to start doing? Take a second Take a second, if you've got a pen or paper, even your mobile phone, you take notes there. What do you need to restructure in your diary? What do you need to stop doing? What do you need to start doing? Again, it's not about doing, doing, doing. It's about through our doing, reorientating our lives around the person of Christ. Last question, who do you need to speak to to help you to be accountable to these things? So great to see our young adults group there, sitting in their life group bubble together. It's good to do this together. Have these conversations with others. Invite their perspective in as you reorientate your lives around Jesus. I want to land us in prayer now. Let's pray together. There are three types of people I'd love to lead us in prayer. and I want you to locate yourselves as we pray. Those of us today who are still looking for work, whose businesses or who's, you know, um, in your professional capacity, you've been zeroed or you've radically diminished capacity because of COVID. I want to pray for those who are looking for work and needing to grow business because of the season. I want to pray for those of us who are wanting fresh revelation of the worth and the dignity of what you do and how God is interested in it. And then lastly, for those of us who've made it work and our productivity an idol, Maybe your career and idol, and you need to lean your weight as you jump all your weight from there onto Christ, the true rock. I wonder which of those groups are you. Let's close our eyes. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I pray right now you would help each of us locate ourselves in what it is you're saying to us, that every person would find something right now that you'd whisper to them of. As you bring that to Jesus, would you do that now? Just as you sit in your own homes, your eyes are closed, bring that to Jesus. Jesus, this is the thing. As I look at your word, as I look at your created order, as you work and rest, God, I want to come into alignment with your design. And so I bring you this thing. For those who are looking for work and for business, God, I pray your blessing over their endeavors. I pray your nearness as you both comfort them and encourage them and and bolster their sense of worth in the midst of this very kind of painful pursuit when it doesn't work out our way God would you come alongside and minister of true identity at the same time God I'm praying for blessing for increased opportunity and I'm asking for new doors to open into work and into business for those in our family God I pray too, Lord Jesus, for those who have, for those who are just struggling to find out your sense of delight in their work. God, would you minister to them now? 
Show them where they can involve you. Show them what aspects are bringing beauty, what aspects are, are bringing life and flourishing, what aspects are bringing order, what aspects are bringing structure, and how you bless their endeavors. God, I pray that work wouldn't be time away from you, but it would be time with you as we learn to work with you. And then, God, I, I pray for those of us who have made our work uh, our identity. God, we repent. We repent. And we ask that you would untether our identity and primary sense of worth from our work and our family. And you would tether it to yourself. You, we, we, we do. We, we, we almost lean. You can lean off that leg and onto the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus, on you, I place my identity. On you, I place my primary um, pursuit for love and acceptance to justify my existence in this world. And from this place of being loved and accepted and justified, let me be a blessing to those around me and to my world. I pray in your name, Christ. Amen. God bless you.